Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Jehovah Witnesses, as we move forward, at least with some of these organizations in America, I think it's best that we perhaps change the way that we deal with getting them in context with the world population. Instead of dealing with percentages, perhaps we can compare them just to what we've studied so far. So to think through where Jehovah Witnesses stand in terms of adherence of those who would claim to be such, starting with the Muslims, you might uh, remember or not, uh, the world population, about 1.6 billion Then we said religious Jews, 15 million, which were much smaller, but we tried to prove the importance of Judaism, not just from our perspective as Christians in Scripture, but because of the influence on geopolitical issues and all that goes on in our world today. Roman Catholics, 1.2 billion. Uh, Mormons, 15 million. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses, 8 million. Now, in the United States, oh, I should make clear here, Jehovah Witnesses, unfortunately, as I think through what Jehovah Witnesses are and and who is counted, if I use the definitions of Jehovah Witnesses, then I'm going to have a smaller number, which I have here for you. Eight million is the estimate currently for uh, worldwide witnesses of Jehovah, those that are engaged in the work. Uh, They're they're publishers. They're out there doing the work and, and giving reports as to their work in their communities. Attending Jehovah Witness events, the most important one is the annual event We would know it as the Lord's Supper, the memorial meal of Christ. That number goes up dramatically as they bring people to it, much like their Easter, if you will. It's a time for them very important in their calendar. And these folks that are counted, that's a head count versus those who are engaged in the work of witnessing for uh, Jehovah. So that number goes up. That's why I've got two numbers for the JWs. In America, Muslims, we said, constitute in our country 3.3 million. Religious Jews outnumber them. Uh, almost, uh, not quite by twice. Roman Catholics, 66 million, which dwarfed the other two. Mormons, we saw last week, 6 million, more than religious Jews in our country. And Jehovah Witnesses, 1.2 million. And again, those are the reporting active agents engaging in in door-to-door work and representing Jehovah, or so they think. Attending Jehovah Witness memorial meals once a year, that's uh, at least twice that, 2.5 million roughly. So when you think about Jehovah Witnesses, you may say, well, that's kind of a small number. But a survey I read of conservative church attendees and evangelical churches, 87% reported that they have at least met a Jehovah Witness. That's a lot. 25% said that they've allowed, this is church-going evangelical Christians now, allowed Jehovah Witnesses to come into their home, one out of every four people. And then 23% from these conservative churches said they've accepted literature from the Jehovah Witnesses. So somewhere in their house, even if it was just for a short stay from their hand to the trash or their hand to the kitchen table, uh, they brought the material and the teaching of the Jehovah Witnesses into their home. So that may be a small number, but to know that folks like us know Jehovah Witnesses, we have probably had them at our door. I'm assuming that some of you have let them into your house and you've taken their literature. You may have even read through or skimmed through some of their tracts and their booklets. And so uh, this is something we need to definitely be aware of. Their churches are not called churches or their assemblies are not called churches. They call them kingdom halls and that usually they'll have Jehovah Witness on the placard somewhere. Seems that through the years that 
font has gotten bigger on the Jehovah Witness side, but Kingdom Hall is usually what you've seen. In some places I've seen just Kingdom Hall and Jehovah Witness in very small print. If you were to pull up a map of our area here, you can see I think there was 28 or so listed just here in our area. So it's not as uh, ubiquitous as some other groups, but you certainly have plenty of Kingdom Halls around here in South Orange County. And this even goes out to Riverside and up into uh, North County. Well, it all starts with a man named Charles Taz Russell. Though there's a lot of work in modern Jehovah Witness literature to distance themselves from Charles Russell, uh, you need to understand the connection is, is undeniable. The teaching of uh, Charles Russell was foundational to the JWs. We would not have Jehovah Witnesses were it not for Charles Russell. He was raised a Presbyterian as a boy. He was brought to church in a Calvinistic church with a high view of, of God, a high view of God's sovereignty, a lot of talk about predestination and election. And of course, in any good evangelical or Bible teaching church, there was a lot of discussion about the state of the lost, those that would reject Christ and the punishment they would receive. And he hated that. As a teen, he rebelled against that doctrine, even as a young person, and said, I, I, can't, I can't process that, can't handle that, I don't like it. So he left the Presbyterian church, actually became a congregationalist that refused to believe in hell. That was his first enclave, a place for him to, to, to find some solace from this doctrine. But then he left that all together and decided he was going to research all the religions that were available to him. And he came out of that in a self-realization, a little different than Joseph Smith, who claims a divine revelation to basically say they're all bad. All of them are uh, unacceptable. So he researched religions, said they're all wrong, denominations, all of that. He didn't like them. So while he's benching himself from religion, he ran into some Adventists. And we're going to talk about Seventh-day Adventists and their very impactful uh, influence on so many different sections of modern society and in groups like this, many groups, including the Jehovah Witnesses. And he started to become intrigued with prophecy. Now, Advent, I hope you recognize, we talk at Christmas, of the old school language at least, of the Advent of Christ, the first Advent. But of course, when we talk about Adventism, the focus is on the second Advent, the coming of Christ. And all of this, as we'll learn when we look at Adventism, grew out of a very uh, ambitious teacher and, and student of prophecy named William Miller. And uh, G. White picked up on that uh, influence and, and certainly grew out of that. Uh, what grew out of that was what we know today as Seventh-day Adventists and other offshoot groups we'll, we'll try to look at down the road. But we need to understand when he runs into an Adventist, certainly in his time frame in the 1800s, he is certainly going to be intrigued by all their teaching, all their emphasis, all their preaching on the end times. So he starts to study his Bible and gets very intrigued with all this teaching about the expectancy uh, of the return of Christ. He starts studying, and he starts his home Bible study, basically, with a few of his friends. And I call it a small group, but he has a home study there in his house. And since he seems to be the most ambitious uh, and nimble-minded to sit and, and, and work through teaching that they're going through and all the discussions they have, they appoint him, and, and he accepts. It's, uh, you you want to say it's a self-appointed pastorate, but it's, uh, you know, at least historically, they say, it, the peers said, this is the guy, we like him, and, and we want him to be 
our leader, which should, I hope, in your minds, if you've been through our one-on-one discipleship program, our partners program, you should know that there's no allowance for that in Scripture uh, to start a home Bible study and, and turn that into a church and appoint pastors for yourself. Uh, second, uh, First Timothy chapter 4 makes it very clear. You have pastors appointing pastors, and uh, we could talk a lot about ecclesiology, which we did in our Good Theology series, and you can go look up all of that to recognize this was a, a big problem to start with. He's rejecting churches. He's rejecting denominations. He gets interested in Bible study, particularly Bible prophecy. He starts a study group in his house, and now he appoints himself or is appointed uh, the pastor of that group. They start to call him Pastor Russell. Uh, And then when he feels that sense of empowerment, he begins to really rail on and denounce organized religion. He is against them all, unlike Joseph Smith claiming a divine emissary who came from heaven to tell him that they're all wrong. He has determined, uh, and he has a great big ego, by the way, that he has understood all these religions to be wrong and organized religion is satanic. And what he didn't know at this time that he was going to organize a pretty organized religion. But he denounced them nevertheless in his 20s. By age 27, he's a publisher now. He's publishing a bill, a handout, a, a a magazine, if you will, a newsletter called Zion's Watchtower. And he is finding plenty of people, certainly in this age, in the 1800s. And we'll talk about that when we talk about Adventism and the interest in prophecy. You had a lot of people very interested to read what he had to say about, is this the end times? Are we living in the end times? Is Christ coming back? What about all these prophecies in Daniel? You know, could it be the time? And so this gets a readership. He gains a following because he starts to interpret things, as we'll see. Uh, He says a lot about what's happening in the current day in terms of the, the return of Christ. And he, he's quite sure that he's got this figured out from the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament statements. And so his unique brand of eschatology, uh, which is different from Ellen G. White and the Adventists, he starts to gain uh, a little following at this particular point in his 20s. Well, what he does is instrumental. It is the reason that the Jehovah Witnesses even today are who they are and why there are so many of them. He starts to recruit people and he says, this is what it is to be faithful to God, to take the, the, the publications and the things that I write, these news, newsletters, and you are to distribute them door to door. And you're supposed to go out there and try and convert people to this perspective. Now, there's a lot of folks uh, that have a lot of unique views of theology and they're method is to call people together to wherever they are teaching and let's all get together and, and, and let's, let's learn this. And then maybe you might want to invite some friends at work to come. He was very aggressive and ambitious in saying, you need to go door to door in pairs and get people to read this material. And, and so he had a very aggressive growth strategy and it started to work. He married a gal named Maria Ackley who helped him run the watchtower. And she was very uh, strong gal, and you can read a lot about her story, and there's tons written on on all of this, but she is his partner in crime, I like to say, and and they work together to distribute and and build this following and to build this newsletter of Zion's Watchtower. Uh, They had a bad marriage. They only had a quote-unquote happy marriage for a while, and eight years in, things were souring, uh, accusations of him being a womanizer. Uh, A lot of accusations surfaced when when she filed to get uh, alimony from him, but after, I think, 12 or 13 years, she actually leaves him. They go to court, and in court, uh, she testifies that he is a scam. His whole life is a scam, and even what she helped to do uh, was a scam. Now, there's a lot of dirty divorces, I understand, and a lot of people say a lot of things, but she was certainly an insider in the organization, and she had a lot to 
to say about what a uh, scammer that he was. And there's a lot that came out in that. Uh, But I can say it wasn't the only avenue of, of besmirching his character. He had been involved, just like you saw Joseph Smith involved in divining rods and treasure seeking and, and, and scamming people through his supposed abilities to uh, divine you know, the pathway to, to hidden buried treasure. Uh, Charles Russell um, did several things that start to look like that, like he had inside information. One of the big controversies in his life was the miracle wheat that he sold and claimed that it was, it was magic. It had a, a, a fruitfulness and a productivity that was unlike any other kind of wheat. And he, he sold it at an inflated price, claimed he wasn't getting rich off of it. Maria testified to the contrary, that certainly he was all about that. As a matter of fact, the paper that was exposing him as a fraud exposed all the elements of his organization as a money-making scheme. He was the unrivaled leader. He had all control in the organization. And when he tried to sue them for defaming him in court, basically he lost. That's why I worded it that way. Russell lost in court over a scam claim uh, that really started the germ of it, pardon the pun, was the miracle wheat claim. And so, and I'm just touching the high points on the character issues that, that kept surfacing in his life. And you can see that. And we could have gone there a lot last week as well with the leader of that organization. Lots of things came out in terms of the claims that he made versus the, the, the later admissions. He was proved later in court and had to admit that he had no formal theological education. Now, he had bloviated and claimed he had lots of uh, theological education. He had claimed that he had mastered Hebrew and Greek, which, of course, are the languages, the original languages, the Old Testament and the New Testament, when tested. Now, now, you don't need to know much Greek to be able to read the alphabet. And in court, they actually tested him to see if he could even read the letters of the alphabet. Uh, and he couldn't, he couldn't ide- even identify the, the letters of the Greek language, uh, which you can do after 20 minutes in a Greek class your first day. I mean, it's just, uh, I mean, you can just, you can be, uh, you know, rushing a fraternity, I guess, and learn your Greek letters. But uh, anyway, it, it proved he had zero um, knowledge of this. He, uh, being ordained, he claimed to be a pastor, to be duly authorized, and, and of course, when pressed, and he, he had to answer to show credentials, he, he couldn't. So, th- and I just, a couple of highlights here to say, many times he was proved uh, to be a liar. And, and there are many other references historically that the Jehovah Witnesses just can't distance themselves from. They can't controvert the evidence of him being a liar, like things where he was caught with all of the advertisements he put in papers about preaching in foreign lands, which people that were there said he didn't even leave the ship, he didn't even get off the docks. Many things that, uh, if you look through his life, these just weren't whispers and gossip behind his back. Uh, The guy's character and, and reputation was shot Uh, with most people who didn't get wowed by his prophetic teachings. He published a book originally called The Millennial Dawn, but it came to be known as Studies in Scripture, which you can still look up and find is a very important part of their, the the beginnings and the catalyst, uh, the embryonic form of all the theology of the JWs uh, can be traced back to studies in Scripture, though many of it had to be amended because it was based on prophetic promises that didn't come true. Charles Russell was so confident he had no problem being very uh, confident in his in his his abilities to write biblical truth that he once wrote this about his studies in scripture after it was renamed if the six volumes of scripture studies are practically the bible topically arranged with bible proof texts given 
we might not improperly name the volumes the Bible in arranged form. Now, that's an interesting way to put the book you've just written. Uh, it's so biblical that basically I've just kind of rearranged the Bible, and there it is, the Bible in rearranged form. That is to say, they are not mere comments on the Bible, but they are practically the Bible itself. You know, if you see an end cap at the Christian bookstore, has some guy on it that wrote a book, and it says practically the Bible itself, which, by the way, there are some best-selling books that are you could claim that about. All of them to be avoided, by the way. Furthermore, he goes on, not only do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible by itself. Now, just park that for a second. We're going to talk about how he viewed himself, how the organization viewed him. Not only do we, do we find that people cannot see the divine plan in studying the Bible itself, but we see also that if anyone lays the scripture studies, that's the name of the book, aside, even after he's used them, after he's become familiar with them, after he's read them for 10 years, so I've got it in my mind, if he then lays them aside and ignores them and goes to the Bible alone, I love that phrase, but he doesn't, though he has understood his Bible for 10 years, our experience shows that within two years, he goes into darkness. Now think that through. I'm going to write a book. I'm going to bring it to your house with two emissaries. They're going to give it to you. And it's a lot of information about the Bible. It's basically the Bible arranged, rearranged, and there it is. And I'm not just commenting on the Bible. It's practically the Bible itself. Now, if you read the Bible by itself, if you've had my help and that, and you do that for 10 years, that'll all be great. But if you go away from my book for two years, you get back to being just a stooge again because all you got is the Bible. That should be a self-defeating sentence, I would think. On, on the other hand, if he merely had read the Scripture studies, that's his six-volume set, with their references, and had not read a page of the Bible as such, he would be in the light at the end of two years because he would have the light of scriptures. There's just no way to read a testimony about a book like this other than saying, this is the decoding ring for the Bible. And if you don't read my works, you can't understand the Bible. You take the, the decoding ring out of, out of the equation, you won't understand the Bible. But if you get it, you, you got it. You can see it. So he becomes the indispensable interpreter of Scripture. Charles Taz Russell. There's just a taste of, of Charles. Joseph F. Judge Rutherford. Let's talk about him real quick. He becomes the next president of the Jehovah Witnesses, known as Judge Rutherford, uh, 1869 to, to 1942. He started as a court stenographer, became a lawyer, then a prosecutor, then he was a district judge in Missouri. So that's why he was called Judge Rutherford. He didn't serve very long. But as an attorney, he joined Charles Russell and became a part of the movement. Matter of fact, the story goes that he, was, he sold encyclopedias early on in his life. He felt so bad getting rejected at the door selling the encyclopedias that when he ended that term in his life, he said, anytime someone comes to the door with a book, now that I have a job and I'm gainfully employed uh, and I make decent money, I'm going to buy it, whatever it is. So up comes on the door, someone knocking on the door, studies in scriptures, the millennial dawn shows up and he buys it, being true to the fact that he has sympathy for people getting the door slammed in their face because he used to be a book salesman door to door and he buys the book and uh, he starts reading it and he and his wife get very intrigued with it all. And there's a lot afoot in the culture regarding biblical prophecy. And so he eats it up and he writes them and he says, I, I like this stuff. Very interesting. It's intriguing. And he ends up getting drawn to the movement, becomes the legal counsel for the organization and for Charles Russell himself. Many left the Watchtower when he became the president. And like a lot of movements that start with a very strong leader, uh, the second leader has a very hard time establishing himself. And there were four 
out of the seven governing leaders of the organization left. You had a lot of resignations. Many of them hated Judge Rutherford right out of the gate. It was hard enough dealing with the ego of, of Charles Russell. Uh, but Joseph Rutherford was even worse because he was smarter. And, and, and in that sense, he became the very autocratic leader of this organization. And a lot of people were running for the doors. Uh, so it took a dip in attendance and he lost some of his key leaders. But he picked up the mantle of accusing everyone else of being wrong and he being right and his organization being right. He was willing to take the mantle of being that channel of divine information to people. And he was, an or, he was a vocal critic of all organized religion. And it doesn't matter if it's Catholics or Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists, you all are, are wrong, no matter what the religion is. And of course, this is America, and there's a lot of talk about Protestantism and, and, and Catholicism in our day, in his day, I should say. Judge Rutherford was a critic of World War I. Uh, JWs are pacifists. As you know, a lot of these essential doctrines that we find as a part of the JWs today came from this era and from Judge Rutherford's opinions. Uh, and as a critic of the war, he's actually arrested for sedition in 1918 for opposition to World War I. As a matter of fact, if you go on Google and look him up, eventually you'll run into his, uh, his mugshot. Interesting to see his mugshot and his fingerprints as he was processed and put in jail with a few other leaders of the uh, Watchtower group. But he was prolific, wrote a ton of books, and he began to shape a lot of the views of the Jehovah Witnesses. He was the one who picked the name Jehovah Witnesses for the group. It came under his leadership. He was the one that named the groups and the study groups Kingdom Halls. He required door-to-door distribution of the material. It wasn't just encouraged. Now it was required. It was a very important element of it. Uh, a lot of the things that you see as distinctive of Jehovah Witnesses, maybe that you know, like not you know, saluting flags, not commemorating holidays, not celebrating Christmas, you know, not, you know, going to, to war, not being in uniform. All these things that the JWs are known for, a lot of them were traced back uh, to Judge Rutherford when he had established his position. And of course, his writings were what fueled this group and, and made it so expandable in so many places and why it's survived to this day. This is just one of the ads that came out of one of the books. I mean, I know the print's too small there, but there are impressive numbers here. In seven years, five million, over five million copies of, of the one book. It, you know, in two and a half years, two million copies. In one year, a million copies. In, in a matter of months, three quarters of a million. In three months, he, he sold, uh, you know, uh, one half of a million books and the titles are there. But the idea of his, of this catching on at just the right time, striking with more material when the iron was hot, everyone was hungry for this. And this, this was the man that, that kept it moving. He got so popular and his writings became so well received that he then began to make statements about himself uh, that were not only like what Charles Russell had said about his works, but they went even further claiming direct access to God. He said things like this, my speeches, his preaching, his talks, his lectures do not contain my message, uh, but they do contain the expression of Jehovah's purpose, which he commands must now be told to the people. He is a modern day prophet. He's the guy, he's going to speak God's truth from heaven. Rutherford said that you've got to have the watchtower. If you don't, you're in big trouble. And again, just like Taze Russell, the idea of studying the Bible on its own, which was always the temptation of people, they'd say, well, this guy's talking all about the Bible. Why can't we just study the Bible? He said, the people that are suggesting to use the Bible without the watchtower, they sound loyal to God's word, but it's not so. It is merely the effort of those teachers who want to have these churches and groups. They want to come between the people of God and the divinely provided light upon God's word. Again, it's the decoding ring. 
You can't read it. It's like trying to read your Bible in the dark. You can't do it. You need the flashlight. And that's what the Watchtower is and his leadership, his teaching, his lectures and his books and the pamphlets that he wrote. So very large claims. These are not just people saying, I've got some great insight on the Bible. They're claiming to be the divine channel of information uh, to the world. Nathan Knorr was the third president of the Jehovah Witnesses. 1905, he was born, died in 1977. He joined the JWs at uh, age 18. He was the third president of the Watchtower and Tract Society, which is the formal name now of this organization. This man is probably the reason that it still survives to this day with the kind of quantity of participants that it does. Becoming the president in 1942, he put his business acumen to work and he started buying property in New York and Brooklyn. Uh, He started uh, building more publishing houses. Uh, He worked hard at trying to grow the group with the door-to-door proselytizing of new converts, uh, usually from people that claimed to be Christians and didn't read the Bible. Now you need the decoder ring to understand it. Uh, it, The growth of the organization under Noor's leadership went from 100,000 to over 2 million It was a huge season of growth for the JWs. They focused a lot on overseas growth, as they do today. There's a lot of focus on international missions, finding people that have some allegiance to the Bible and trying to tell them they don't have the information they need to rightly understand it. Uh, He actually was the one that worked hard to train people, not just to give information, but to be able to fight for that information. He was the teacher of apologetics. And if you've ever had JWs that you have talked to at the door and you've tried to reason with them, you understand they're well-prepared. A lot of that mentality to be able to defend your faith, which is the teaching of the Watchtower and Tract Society, came from Nathan Knorr, a very bright businessman teaching people to stand their ground and not take the uh, comebacks from church-going Christians and anticipating them all, telling you, say this when they say that. And then he commissioned a new Bible translation, which of course was critical because when you read the Bible with the decoder ring and you realize they're coming up with different things than people reading the Bible without the decoder ring are coming up with, then you got to start saying, well, you're quoting those verses, telling me I'm wrong, using my decoding ring and coming to the conclusions I'm coming to. Well, you know what? The reason is the translation you have is wrong. And so they created the new translation. Let's talk about it. JW Authority comes from the Bible. They will tell you that. But the Bible, if you look closely, isn't just the Holy Bible or the Holy Scriptures. It's the New World Translation of the Bible, which uh, had been in process for over 10 years, uh, maybe longer, as I recall. But they were putting it out in volumes, and, and then it came to a complete one-volume, bound-together version in 1961. It has been revised several times, about five major uh, revisions to it, and yet you can, you, know, you can get the modern, the latest edition of it today. The claim of the New World Translation of the Bible, which they carry in their bag when they come to your door, is that each of the other translations, this is the explanation of it when they put it out, have fallen victim to the power of human traditionalism in varying degrees. So every translation out there is somehow infected and and it's corrupted by the traditions of men. And the quotes that surrounded the unveiling of the New World Translation go on and on and on and on about the problem of the satanic organized religions of the day. Now, at this point, they're very organized and millions of of adherents, and they have, you know, kingdom halls they've set up all over and missions organizations and everything that they do, and yet they claim this very democratic, decentralized organization and saying all those other groups are wrong and the Bibles they produce are wrong and corrupted. 
They quote scripture that all the traditions of men have debased the word of God, and the word of God is whatever the Watchtower and Tract Society says. And when the Bible is messed up, well, it must be messed up in that passage because you're quoting my doctrine to be wrong because the church got a hold of that passage and corrupted it. So just as I always said, when it comes to the authority discussion in all these groups, those that claim the authority of the Bible, which the Jehovah Witnesses do, you've got to go back to that section uh, 13 lectures, hour and a half a piece of how we got our Bible. And if you haven't been through that, you have to go through that because to stand there at the door and have someone tell you that the Bible you're quoting from is wrong, you've got to have confidence in the translations of the Bible that we have available to us today and in the preservation of the Bible through the centuries and knowing how it's come to be the way it has and how to explain the variant readings that do exist in antiquity and, and knowing what the nature of those uh, of those variant readings are, because if you don't know that, then they can tell you anything at the door and, and you believe it. So you've got to go back to the bibliology section, refer to the origin of the Bible series uh, that is available. Now, right out of the gate, I pulled mine off the shelf, of course, this week and started reading it and, and reading the opening of it. And I've spent a lot of time in it in the past, but re-familiarizing myself with it, starting with reading the preface, uh, which tells me in the first sentence, this is a translation from Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Now, if you've been through Origins of the Bible, you know most of the Old Testament is Hebrew, sections of Aramaic, which is basically a dialect of Hebrew, and then Greek in the New Testament, a, a, a dialect of Greek called Koine Greek, the common Greek. Koine means common. Uh, so you've got to know those three languages to be able to translate the Bible from the original languages, which is what the first sentence of the preface says in the New World Translation. Now, like most of their publications, they don't want to tell you who wrote it. They try to keep that a secret. But there was a defector from the JWs who exposed, and, and it's now common knowledge, who the translators were. There were five guys that translated it, including the third president of the Jehovah Witnesses, Nor, and three other guys, and then one hotshot guy, Frederick Franz, uh, was the hotshot. And the, I, the only reason I say that is because four out of the five knew nothing about the biblical languages. The only guy, you know, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Well, there was a guy that knew a little Greek. He had no knowledge of Hebrew. And we had one guy that spoke modern Greek, which is different than Koine Greek or Attic Greek or classic Greek. Uh, so you did have another guy who knew some Greek, but he knew conversational modern Greek. And then everyone else had no idea about ancient Greek, the antiquities of Greek. They knew nothing about it except for Franz, Frederick Franz. Frederick Franz claimed all kinds of things. He claimed to be a, an Oxford Rhodes Scholar. Cincinnati, uh, University of Cincinnati, I think, is where he claimed to have graduated from. All of it proved to be false. He never graduated from college. He apparently did matriculate uh, through part of that uh, course of study. He did study a little in the classics department. He did study some Latin for a while. He took, I don't know, 21 course hours, I think, of Greek in the classics department, which is a little different than Koine Greek, Attic Greek. I did the same. I studied in the seminaries of Koine Greek. I studied Attic Greek at the university. There are distinctions there. But he didn't graduate from college. And when actually put on trial, they actually put up, I, I think it was Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, because early he would claim, of course I know these languages. I know Greek. I have a working knowledge of Hebrew and Aramaic and, and, and all these languages. Well, they actually put up on the wall, they posted up on the wall uh, in Hebrew, Genesis 2, 24, and, and called him on it. We'll translate that for us. He didn't know what verse it was, and he couldn't translate a word of it. And it's not like a difficult passage out of Ezekiel. It's, it's very basic Hebrew, and he had no clue what he was doing. So these guys have been exposed as frauds, is what I'm saying. You don't call a 
You don't call a translation committee together where four of the five guys have never studied any of the languages, and you certainly don't have your hotshot knowing Greek, some Greek, without graduating, and no Hebrew and no Aramaic. So this is a pathetic group of people uh, that claim to have translated something that they start in the preface of saying this is such a big responsibility before God, and you know it's very daunting that we would attempt to translate from the original languages. So uh, right out of the gate, we know this is a this is this is bogus. And I know they've got, I mean they're very good apologists. They'll come back. There's just no denying the basic facts that these guys uh, didn't know what they were doing. It's like you and the people at your table trying to translate a text. How would you do it? Well, if you wanted to pretend you're translating a text, you, certainly you're going to use English. Bibles to come up with a different wording of a text, and that's what they did. Of course, always to match with their second source of authority, and that is the Watchtower and Tract Society. The Watchtower and Tract Society. And what I love about being in the modern age, even go back, you know, a couple decades, we couldn't do this, but now you can get almost everything except the stuff they don't want out, some of the old stuff that they've tried to redact from their teaching, but you can get it all through their website. And matter of fact, I like their website because there's, it's very easy to navigate all that, that, that is on there. You've got, this is just jw.org, we'll get you there. And when you go there, if you go under publications, that's probably the most helpful tab. Uh, and Bible teachings too will give you a lot of stuff. And they have a lot of audios, audio teachings, and they have videos. But you can go under publications and you can get all of their pamphlets, you can get their information, Bibles, magazines, books and brochures, meeting workbooks, all of that is available on their website. So all the source material is there. Anything we say about what the JWs believe, you can go there and you can you can see the source material. Sometimes they're very careful at leading you to a contrary doctrine. They'll start with verbiage and language that sounds, oh yeah, that's right, saved by grace or whatever it might be, died in our place. And then you read, 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 and you get to the bottom and you recognize that that's not, that doesn't sound like what they're teaching us at the Baptist church. It doesn't sound like what they're teaching us at the Presbyterian church. It sounds like something completely different, and, and, and it is. And you just have to expose yourself enough to their teaching to recognize that. Or you get somebody at the door who's saying something about a doctrine and you say it doesn't sound right. You can find why it doesn't sound right on, on jw.org. They believe themselves to be the faithful and wise servant. This is a very important passage for them. That should ring a bell. That's Matthew 24, verse 45. We preached the uh, Lucan version of that not long ago, but this is the one they quote, Matthew 24, 25. In the parable, Jesus is trying to talk about being a faithful steward. When it comes back, Christ comes back, the master comes back, well done, good and faithful servant. He asks the question there, talking about rewards, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Now, this is a statement when Peter asks, is this parable about us or is it about them? They're feeling the conviction. We preach through that. And it's a statement that deals with the responsibility to do what the servant is supposed to do so he'll get rewarded by the master. Well, that little phrase there, because it's stated as a rhetorical question, which, of course, the servant in the parable says, well, I hope that's me, that I'm faithful and wise and I'm doing the work. That's the one who gets rewarded. They then say, well, that's really a statement that describes us, the Watchtower and Track Society. We are the faithful and wise servant. We have been promoted by the master, set over the household of the kingdom, more on that, to give everyone their food, their teaching at the proper time, and now is the proper time. A lot of allegorical interpretations of a lot of passages to basically put the badge on their chest that says we are the ones in charge of the world right now. And they are. That's how they view themselves, as the theocratic leaders of the world representing God on earth. Watchtower brings divine interpretation of the world. God did give his Bible. Problem is it's been corrupted. Much like Joseph Smith said, you can't trust it as it is. 
It's not as corrupted as Joseph Smith would say and his team would say it is, but it's corrupted enough for you to need a different translation and you need the decoder key, which is us in our organization, to tell you what it means. Watchtower is, to quote them, the sole collective channel for the flow of truth to the world. They are the sole collective channel for the flow of truth to the world. Power is vested in the governing body. And again, there's a lot of double talk because you'll see a lot of talk about the fact that, you know, it's a flatlined, egalitarian kind of organization. And we don't have the people in a hierarchy. You know, we don't have a pope. We don't have cardinals. We don't have bishops. But the bottom line is when it comes down to it and you read their organizational documents, the governing body, they are the people in charge in New York. They would even put it this way. God is our father and the watchtower is our mother. And you know, dad's on a business trip, by the way, so mom's really in charge. Just listen to mom (laughs) because the Bible needs to be interpreted through us. So the watchtower is in charge. The Lord sent his angel to see to it that the information is given to his people in due time. The angels have delivered what is published in the watchtower. The watchtower is God's sole collective channel for the flow of biblical truth to men on earth. But you get the gist. They've got the answers. They are, they are in charge. You listen to them. The watchtower is the spiritual direction supplied by visible angels and the Holy Spirit. Independent thinking, much like we saw with the Mormons, is to be avoided. You're not supposed to think through this on your own, much like the Mormons said about the, the president and the council of the 12, the quorum of the 12. If we've done the thinking for you, it's not any different with the Jehovah Witnesses. You don't think on your own about these things. We're going to tell you what to think about it. And you shouldn't be reading non-watchtower Christian material because all of the religions are corrupted. You can't go in a Christian bookstore at Compass and just pull something off the shelf and expect to you know, discern what's right and wrong. You just shouldn't do that. Uh, You should just read Watchtower material. That's the right way to go about it. Now, when you become an organization that has power, authority, to do what they claim to do, to be the decoder ring for Christianity to people, they can read the Bible for you and tell you what it means, and if you get away from our teaching, you'll miss the point entirely, then you have a resident authority, which is not much different if you go back a few weeks to Roman Catholicism, to say, we can make new doctrines. We can change doctrines. We can do things today that weren't done 50 years ago, and we can have new revelation given to you, or at least new insights given to you that weren't formally known. It gives them the ability to change doctrines. Once you reside authority, not in sola scriptura, God has spoken, but you know what? It's, it's me and the Bible, mother and father, and he is still speaking. That makes it a very dynamic organization as opposed to biblical Christianity. And there's lots of examples of this. And you can go into some material I'm going to recommend later that you can see lots and lots of examples of how this has authoritatively changed things. For instance, the cross. You can go back to the 19, late 1920s and go into the 1800s and materials that was produced by the Jehovah Witnesses or the Watchtower Society uh, would always show crosses because everybody shows crosses. Well, in the late 1920s, they decided that's a pagan symbol and they changed the whole view of how people see Jesus dying. Matter of fact, if you've taken some of that literature from the JWs, you'll find whenever Jesus is crucified, he's being crucified on a stake, not a cross, because the cross is just a symbol that came up through the Roman Empire and the the pollution and the corruption and the satanic influence of the church, and it's just one of their mystical symbols, and it's not biblical. And yet, in 1915 it was, because your material had crosses on it. It showed Jesus on a cross. It showed the symbol of the cross, but not anymore. And you can see how it's very convenient as long as you can still have a dynamic source of authority that can change its view as we go along. And, and that's super helpful when you have failed prophetic date setting. And that's what happened chronically at the beginning of the organization. Once you start saying things and you say, this is going to happen here, this is going to take place there, and it doesn't happen as long as you hold the keys and say, well, listen, I'm still able to give you fresh information. I can then reinterpret all that 
and tell you, well, this is, this is why that was, and this is what really happened. It's a lot like what we saw with Ellen G. White. We didn't see it. That's an anachronism. We're going to see it. When we look at the interpretation of events that we claim are going to happen, and then they don't happen, and then we say, well, I didn't tell you the whole story. Here's what I meant about what was going to happen. And that's what the dynamic authoritative leadership does when you have the ongoing ability to create doctrine. i just give you one example. And thankfully, there's enough out there that's still in print. You can see these kinds of things for yourself. The statement that Millions now living will never die because in just a few years from the time he was giving these lectures in the 1920s, he had claimed that the end of the world was going to take place. Let me give you some examples of this, for instance. 1914, the final end of the kingdoms of the world will take place by 1914. And much like William Miller in 1844, the idea of 1914 became this pivotal key benchmark in the theology of the Jehovah Witnesses. And when you claim that everything was going to be done then, and it wasn't done then, you had to then reinterpret what happened then, which became very important. And still, you can find this on jw.org all over the place. Just type in search 1914, and you have a million hits because this is a key date. We'll talk a little bit about it in a minute. What Judge Rutherford was preaching about there on that flyer that I showed you a minute ago was millions now alive will never die. Why? Because in 1925, the resurrection was going to take place. And there was going to be the end, the end of the world. And I just put the high points to tell you this is still going on. 1975, right before 1975, they were saying, after 6,000 years of man's existence, it's all going to come to an end by 1975. That was coming through the Watchtower and Track Society. When it didn't happen in the middle of 1975, people were starting to be skeptical. And they said, well, the Battle of Armageddon will be over and it will take place by the autumn of, of 1975. Uh, they said international peace will be reached in the world by 1986. I don't think that happened. A Peaceful New World by 1989. And again, you, I could show you lots of these and I can give you stuff to research a lot more of their false prophecies, but I should remind you of Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 and 22. I'll read it for you. But a prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. If you say in your heart, how may we know if the prophet has spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word he says does not come to pass or does not come true, then it is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously in my name. You, you need not be afraid of him and his words. Don't worry about what he's saying. Matter of fact, if you were in Old Testament Israel, you're supposed to take him out of the camp and execute him. Some of the statements they make are so difficult to weasel your way out of, they've had to say things like this. Well, some of these that we can't reinterpret in a fresh light to make any sense of, we're just going to tell you they're not false prophecies because they were well-intentioned. And more than well-intentioned, they actually had a good product. They, they produced good fruit. And basically, they say a lot of things happened, though a lot of people did get themselves in financial trouble and ran up credit cards and you know postponed medical uh, you know procedures and all that because they were waiting for these things to take place. There's the negative side. But the positive side is they sure got out there and shared door to door. And we passed out more tracks than we ever have. And we had more converts in the months leading up to that. So they saw this as a good thing. And God prompting all of these prophecies, even though they didn't come true, they still bore some good fruit. Let's talk about their teaching about God. All the reference for this you can find on jw.org. Let's just talk about some of the high points of their teaching about God. The name should tell you a lot. From the very beginning, their concern is that God's name has been removed from the Bible. They are Jehovah Witnesses, and they'll quote Isaiah and say, we're supposed to witness and testify to his name, to the Lord, to, to Jehovah. Jehovah is his name. That's what we should be doing. And so all the corruption of Satan, he's worked hard to take the word Jehovah out of the Bible. But thanks to the New World Translation going on in the 50s and published in 1961, now we have restored it because God says, that's what I want. And until you use my name, uh, you've, got a, you've got a big problem. Matter of fact, it's salvific. And I'll 
least make the comment here in a minute. I show the tetragrammaton there, the three Hebrew consonants that represent the name of God. More on that in a minute. It appears 6,828 times in the Old Testament. And there, in their New World Translation, that means the word Jehovah is going to show up in those almost 7,000 references to God's name. They use the word Jehovah. In the New Testament, they've injected it 237 times. And if you know anything about New Testament languages, you know, well, wait a minute, how do they even get there? Because I think, as I'm going to admit and show you, there are 6,828 references to yod Hey vav Hey, the tetragrammaton, the characters, the Hebrew name, proper name of God. But in the New Testament, we don't have that. Petros, Theos, Kyrios. We've got a lot of Greek words, but we don't have, I mean, we have nothing even looks close to that. So what's that all about? Well, they've decided where it should be. Matter of fact, they will still claim that it was a conspiracy in the early manuscripts of the New Testament to extract the name of Jehovah. Again, there's zero evidence of that. None. Uh, they will claim all kinds of things. They'll talk about Jerome. They'll talk about origin. They'll talk about, see, it's absurd. Proper use of his name is very important to our salvation because that's what we're called to do, to represent his name in the world. And if we don't represent his name, then we're not obeying God. If we don't obey God, we're not going to heaven. So you need to use his name. And when I've talked to JWs, of course, I, they don't know I'm the pastor, of course. Your church doesn't use you know, the name Jehovah. I mean, they're very concerned that the churches that are corrupted and aren't under the auspices and the authority of the Watchtower and Track Society, you know, we, we've got it wrong in, in such a huge salvific way. Or satanic. That's another way to put it. Forgot I put that phrase. There are all groups that don't use the name Jehovah are satanic. Now, this may be a review for some of you, but I think it's important that we don't miss what's being said because they, here's the problem. One of the reasons I chose to do what we're about to do is because they claim and I could quote this from their own sources. We have the best Greek and Hebrew scholars in all of the world under the, under the JW banner. They claim to be the experts in all this, which, of course, their leaders were all exposed as frauds, not knowing anything about the languages or knowing very little about it, at least. And they had to recant any knowledge of the languages. But they claim to have great knowledge of the language. And so at least I want to start with something I like to say to Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to my door. If I'm going to you know, get this hit with, you don't use the name of Jehovah, uh, I'll respond to them, well, you know, that word's not even in any Bible anywhere. And, and so I just want to be very knowledgeable. I want you to be knowledgeable about the use of God's name in the Bible. So let's quickly show you a little bit about what's going on in the Bible and what their beef is and how we can maybe correct this in our thinking. Yahweh. That's the word you'll hear me say often from the platform. Yahweh is... The pronunciation I use, and most people today use, for the four Hebrew consonants. When those consonants show up in the text of Scripture, some 6,828 times, you'll note in your Bible that you have capitals. They're a little bit smaller than the first capital L, but you've got capitals, capital O-R-D. That is the proper name of God, 6,000 times. You'll also find the word in the Old Testament Hebrew, Adonai, which is translated Lord, but note the small case letters. O-R-D are in small case letters. That occurs 442 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. So you've got Yahweh, you've got Adonai. They're very concerned with the word Jehovah. They want us to be using the word Jehovah. That's the word. They are Jehovah Witnesses, and it is important if we don't use that name, if we don't declare his name, we're not even going to be saved. We're satanic if we don't. Now, if you say, well, where does that come from? You know, where, where, how, how's that translated in the Bible? Well, you say it's going to show up in the King James Bible four times. And there are four references to it in the Old Testament. And there's no reason for it because there is no such word in the Hebrew language. So basically, 
It's a technicality, and every Jehovah Witness I've shared this with says it's a technicality, but it's not a technicality when you're yelling at me that I'm not using God's name, and his name is Jehovah, and I tell him there is no name Jehovah anywhere in any Bible, anywhere. For the sake of completion, let's think this through and work this through so you understand why the word Jehovah is a mishmash, okay? Yahweh and Adonai are conflated to make the word Jehovah. Those words don't go together. But they're conflated together to make this makeup word Jehovah that's not even in the Bible. So let's think this through. Remember, you're reading from, not from left to right, but from right to left in, in Hebrew. That's why I swept it in slowly that way. This is called the Tetragrammaton. Y-H-Y-H in English, without any vowel pointings. And there's no vowel pointings on any ancient manuscript of the Old Testament. When I say ancient, I mean really ancient. Around the 10th century AD, they started to put vowel pointings on the Hebrew consonants. The Hebrew language doesn't have them. If you read a newspaper in Israel, those, there's no vowel pointings on them. They expect that you know that. But if you go to a kid's section of a bookstore, those will have vowel pointings on them because vowel pointings help you learn how to pronounce the words, but all you have are the consonants. Here's the word Adonai in Hebrew. Adonai is written after the Masoretic period with vowel points. In other words, the vowels are marks and dashes and dots in Hebrew. Hebrew letters are letters like we're used to. they full size on the page with the exception of the first letter in the word Yahweh, which is the smallest letter in the Old Testament, Yoth. That's why Jesus said not a jot or a tittle, a seraph or a Yoth. Tittle was the word used for Yoth in the Old Testament law. That's the, that's, that's the word. In the Hebrew text, when it was translated for Jews, when you saw the letters, Yoth, He, Vav, He, the Tetragrammaton, you would read Adonai. As a matter of fact, if you go today and you can find the websites where you'll have some cantor, somebody reading the scripture, some reader of scripture reading the Hebrew text. And if you open up, I guess you're not going to do this if you don't know Hebrew, but if you open up your Hebrew Bible and you listen to him reading, whenever I see the word Yahweh on the page, the Tetragrammaton, I'm going to hear him say Adonai. It's a substitution. So he doesn't use it because it's the sacred name. And for him, he doesn't want to pronounce the sacred name. There's even some of these completed Jews that will use the word G-D for God, which is silly. But bottom line is this tradition was we don't speak the sacred name. So it's very important to substitute if I'm a Jewish person with reverence for God not to read his name, which is not where we're at, but that's where they were at. To prompt this, to make sure that you did this, they would add that the Masoretes, the 9th, 10th, 11th century, would put the vowels from the word Adonai and throw it on the consonants of, of Yahweh. Any book on the history of the text or history of Judaism going to tell you that. This is how we got this, this concept, this conflation. It was there as a, as a device for me to see, don't say Yahweh, say Adonai, which is what they do. They still to this day. So yo, there's yo, there's hey, there's vav. And there's hey, okay, repeating of that, that second and fourth letter. Now, here are the vowel pointings, which go from top to bottom, top to bottom, top to bottom in, in Hebrew script. This first one, for whatever it's worth, it's called a reduced, reduced pathic, the A vowel, but it's an E sound. Then you have a holum, which is just a dot up above the, the letter, okay? And then you have a comets, which is the A sound. That's the little mark for that. Looks like a little T, two little dashes. So you got reduced pathic, holum, comets. Getting a Hebrew lesson tonight. Yod, He, Vav, He. There, there's the letters and there's the consonants and they were thrown up on the consonant. Now, look what happens here. When you do that, if you were to conflate them, which you're not supposed to do, you'd put a E sound between the Y and the H and you'd put an O sound between the H and the W or V sound and you'd put an A between the Vav and, and the He and you would have that word. What's that? 
Well, if you turn the Ys into Js, which everyone did coming out of that Hebrew that had no J sound, that's why every J name in the Bible, proper name, and, you know, if you're going to pronounce it in Hebrew, it's always a Y, not a, not a J. Joshua is not Joshua, it's Yahshua. And Jehovah, in this case, is Yahovah, but there is no Yehovah because those are the vowels from Adonai. They're not the vowels from Yehovah because there is no vowels for Yahweh because you never wrote them down. But if you ask the Jewish people, if you ask those that, and there is some debate about this, what are the vowel sounds? They're not going to be Adonai's vowel pointings. All that to say. And it's funny to watch some people that aren't aware of this. Often they are if they're experienced at my door. I'll say there is no word Jehovah. And I'll say the word is Yahweh. And you're concerned about me going to hell or being satanic because I'm not using God's name. I'm saying you're conflating vowels from a word that don't belong on, on, those, on those consonants. If they have knowledge, they'll go, oh, yeah, I know, but. Or sometimes they just tell me that, I guess. But the bottom line is I think it's funny that we've created a whole religion out of a word that doesn't exist. But it was a mistake, and that mistake was codified in the King James Version of 1611 in four passages. And usually that became an issue because when you had the word Adonai and Yahweh put together, you had to decide what to do because you weren't going to write down in your Bible, Lord, Lord, with capitals in one and small case in the other. So translators had ways to get around that. But that's the problem. If you said Mike Fabares is such a sacred person, which you never would, that I'm not going to say Mike's name. And so every time I see his name in print, I'm going to say the word pastor instead. That's basically what happened with the name of God. Every time they got to the word Mike, they said pastor. Well, what happens when the sentence shows up and it says Pastor Mike? What are you going to say? Pastor, pastor? Well, there's a problem. And sometimes translators dealt with that in every translation in a different way. So that's a little on the word quote unquote, the word Jehovah. I know some of our old hymns have it because it shows up four times in the King James Bible. And I don't really care. I'm not a stickler on any of that, but I am saying, uh, you know, if you're going to base so much of your theology on restoring the name of God, you missed it. Let's talk about Christ. Jesus is Michael, the archangel. If you didn't know that, that's what the JWs at your door will tell you. They tell you this without getting too complicated because there's so much about their theories of who we are as individuals. And I don't want to get too far afield because I didn't really elaborate this. I didn't have a section on the teaching about people. But the teaching about people really influences their doctrine of Christ because the concept of who we are is not a biblical concept of who we are. They'll say it's satanic and corrupted and all that. But the Bible teaches that we are material and then God breathes into Adam spirit and he becomes a living being. So you have that and that's enough for them to say, well, folly is so far. But really what we're saying is you, these two things... Are and on, the, on JW.org they'll illustrate it this way is like a is like a boombox and and you have to put electricity in it to work and so your hardware and software working together and that's a human being and I'm with you I guess in saying I'm okay with the Greek words and Hebrew words for spirit and body being under the banner of soul I got no problem with that I become a living soul because I'm spirit and body but that's a contextual issue in other words it's because we're here on earth but then the bible makes very clear when you die your soul leaves when when paul's concerned about his imprisonment saying i might have to leave you here but you know what for me to die is gain and he says second corinthians 5 absent from the body is to be present with the lord jesus saying into your hands he says to the father i commit my spirit the spirit is who we are. And we teach this often when we hit passages that have this concept. We are embodied or encased in flesh. They don't have that teaching. They have the teaching that the two of these things have to be together and that makes a person. Your spirit is not who you are encased in flesh. 
You are body, spirit together, and that's the only way you are. Because if ever the, the, the boombox gets unplugged, you, you're done. You cease to be. There is no you. And I'm saying, you want to put a bullet through my head tonight. I'm going to live on two hours from now. I just won't be here. I'll be somewhere else. I'll be in the presence of God. I will be, as Paul said, naked from my body, 2 Corinthians 5, but it doesn't mean I cease to exist. I'll be pleasing him whether I'm at home in the body or whether I'm away and in God's presence. My aim is to please the Lord. I'm a person who is a spirit encased in body. That's not what they teach. And part of the problem became this pre-existent Christ. How does that work? See, because the rest of us are not pre-existent. God creates us. We are spirit. We're given a body. We're born. Mormons say, well, you're a pre-existing spirit. All of us are. We're given bodies. That's one way, false way to look at it. JWs will say, you don't exist. You're born and you exist. You're created, you exist. And then when you die, you stop existing. Well, when it comes to Jesus, clearly there's a lot about his pre-existence. For Abraham was, I am. He talks about all the concepts, or the Bible talks about all these concepts regarding Christ as being pre-existent. So we've got to deal with that somehow. And the JWs deal with it this way. Jesus did pre-exist as a spirit being. And he was a spirit being like all those other angels. As a matter of fact, he was the top angel. He was the archangel, the archangel Michael. He was the greatest angel of all. So really, Jesus is who Michael was, which is one and the same. He was the greatest. Jesus slash Mike, I don't know, just for brevity, is the first creation of God. God creates Michael as the very first creation. And then through Michael, he uses Michael to create everything else. So Michael is, who we now know as Christ, Jesus, he was the agent of all creation, which starts to sound biblical. He's created before all things, through all things are created, through, there it is. He's the agent of creation. Great. Well, Michael is the agent of creation. Now, Michael is not God, but he is an, he's a God. He is an, a God of sorts, not the God, because there's only one God, God Jehovah. And I should add at this point, since they don't have a section on pneumatology or teaching about the Holy Spirit, there is no Holy Spirit, not in the way you think of a Holy Spirit who has an intellect, emotion, and will. They will say at your door, no, he's a force. He's a life force. He's an active force. But he's not God. He's not a person. So there is no trinity in Jehovah Witnesses. All there is is a God, Jehovah they call him, and Michael, the archangel, who is a God, the first creation of God, and that's who we know as Jesus. He's not the God. Michael, the spirit, gives up his existence to become Jesus. So where was Michael, the archangel, on that, that morning in Bethlehem where there was this baby lying in a manger? He ceased to exist. He gave up his existence to become Jesus. That's very different than the incarnation. Jesus became human, not the incarnation of deity. Michael exchanges his existence for the existence of Jesus, the baby Jesus. That's not at all what the Bible teaches, but that's the concept of the pre-existent Christ. Jesus then dies on a stake, at least if you're reading in JW material, Watchtower material after the 1920s. He dies on a stake as a ransom. That's their big passage, right? Give his ransom, his life as a ransom for many. Again, I don't have time to explain all this, but you've got to go back to the atonement theories in Christology when we went through all the explanations of the atonement and how Christ purchased our salvation. Well, redemption, atonement, ransom, all of these words helped round out the view of what Christ did on the cross. They've taken the one word ransom and they've used that as the cornerstone of all their teaching about what Christ did on the cross. And though we don't have time to get into it and explain it all, it's a very simple explanation of Christ dying and exchanging, basically, his life for the life of Adam, which opens up for you an opportunity now to be, to be saved. 
We'll talk about salvation in a minute. Jesus became non-existent when he died, as we all do. They don't believe you have an existence after life, right? You don't, you don't do that. Either you get turned into a spirit being eternally, which is for a very special group of the anointed class. We'll talk about that. Or you cease to exist. And again, this gets back to the very beginning of why you had Charles Tez Russell say, I don't like church because I, I don't like the thought of people going to hell. Well, in his theology, no one goes to hell. Why? Because when you die, you die. The only way to live is if God recreates you as a spirit being or you get your body reconstituted and the electricity gets plugged back in. And if he does, he goes away with the mortal body and gives you a new body anyway. And you get created as an earthly person. But if you're lost, you're just lost. You cease to exist. And if you're saved, by the way, whatever saved means, it's one of two places for you to go. We'll talk about that. You're sleeping between now and then. And they love to quote the passage about sleeping, which again... Sleep is a euphemism. We've talked about that in the past. Just like we would say things like, oh, Ethel passed away. We don't mean she passed away. It's a euphemism. That's a nice way to say she died. Paul uses the word sleep for a euphemism for death. Then he was raised. And when he's raised, he wasn't raised the way you think he's raised. Matter of fact, the body just went poof and it's gone. And he was made a spirit creature, which means now he's gotten his same name tag he had before Hello, my name is Mike. He becomes Michael the archangel again after his resurrection. Jesus remained as the spirit creature in the heavenlies until 1914. And in 1914, he returned. Now, again, that was a part of a failed prophecy that said the end of the world would take place, the resurrection, all that would be done in the middle of the 1914. You can read about it on jw.com. Actually, what you'll read is the sanitized version, which basically says, now here's what we really think happened on, in 1914. That is that Christ came back, but you didn't see it. He came back invisibly. He came back spiritually. And he rules now as king of this theocratic kingdom that we're now living in, ruled by and governed by the Watchtower and Tract Society. So that's important. Their eschatology is past, preteristic. It's done. I mean, at least the work is being done now, but the end has already come. Now we're trying to preach the uh, gospel of the kingdom to everybody. And then the end end will come. Well, again... I made a decision on this one, and I maybe shouldn't have looking at the time, because they'll always talk about John 1, 1, and I got to talk about John 1, 1 for a minute. Is the Word really God? Okay, there's the passage you're used to. In the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God. Every Jehovah Witness is eventually going to get around to this passage. Is the Word really God? The Jehovah Witness claim is, no, 1961. This is a scan of my New World Translation. John 1, 1. Since it's too small to read, I'll put it up there. Here's how it's put. In the beginning, the Word was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Now, you're familiar with this, are you not? This is John 1, 1, and this is the classic passage, one of them, one of many, to again say he wasn't God. The Word, as described in John 1, is the person that would be Christ, but at that point, he was Michael the Archangel, and he wasn't God, God, with a capital G, but he was a God. That's one of the focus concerns of the JWs. Now, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society explained in 1951, as they were starting the translation of the New World Translation, the problem this way. This is what they came out with first. They said, how are we to understand John 1, 1, and 2, of which there are differing translations, which I laugh at every time I read it, because I can go all day on translations from John 1, 1. I just pulled up a quick list here for my software, if you can see it. Here's John 1, 1. They're concerned with differing translations. Oh, there are some different translations, but if we're concerned about a God at the end, was God, was God, was God, was truly God, was fully God, was God, was God, was God, was God, was God. Was God. There's a lot of translations there, but there's nobody debating that phrase. But in 1950, they said, oh yeah, since we've examined so much of what John wrote about Jesus, who was the word made flesh, 
we are now in a position to determine which of those several translations is correct. Okay, yeah, let's figure that out. And again, I could go on all day with more translations. And we've got a lot of translations in English, but no translation is confused about that passage. To understand what they've done here, because they always want to claim to be the, the Greek experts at your door. You get this next five minutes in your brain, you got, you got a lot more knowledge than they'll ever have, I guarantee you, concerning Greek, because they don't know Greek. Matter of fact, you should just buy a Greek New Testament, put it by the front door, and just for fun on the day that they come over, just hand it to them and say, would you look up John 1-1 for me and let's read it together. They can't find John 1-1. And what they'll always tell you is they've told me many times, well, we're going to bring our Greek expert back. Great. Bring him, bring him all. Well, bring him over. And I've had him come over. Well, I'm going to bring the Greek expert expert over. And then eventually you get off the list to where they skip your house, which was great <laughs> for about five years. All right. To understand this, again, give me five minutes of your, your brain here and, and let's at least talk you through what's going on in this passage. English has a definite article, the. English also has an indefinite article. We're not talking about a definite thing. We're talking about an, any definite, any, an indefinite thing, anything. Then we use a or for a vowel sounding beginning of the word, there's an on, on, definite. I want to go to the restaurant, definite article, and you have the restaurant in mind. Indefinite, I want to go to a restaurant. We make that distinction in our English language, very simple. A definite restaurant, the restaurant, or a restaurant. Definite article, the, which has various inflections, that means it's written in different ways because Greek is a highly inflected language for a good reason, I'll tell you about in a minute, but the idea of how it's written is different but makes no difference, it's a definite article. It's declined in various ways. And if you come from another country, you know other languages, you know there's declensions in other languages. We don't have many in our language. The indefinite article, there is no designation for that. There's no character for that. In other words, if you're going to say, I want to go to the restaurant, well, then in Greek, you're going to say, I want to go to the restaurant, and you're going to write down letters. You know, it's going to be one, two, one, two, three, or four. Anywhere from two letters to four letters declined based on the feminine, masculine, or the role it's playing in the sentence. But you're going to have a definite article there in Greek. Indefinite, you're going to read it this way in Greek. I want to go to restaurant, which sounds like you're five or four or three, but that's correct grammar in Greek because there's no, there's no indefinite article. So if, if your husband says, I want to go to restaurant, he's not having a stroke. He is trying to tell you it doesn't matter which one. I don't care which one, but I, I want to go to restaurant. Now that's normal, good Greek grammar right there. If a noun has an article, it is always definite always. If a noun does not have an article in Greek, it may be definite or it may be indefinite. And there's no tap dancing there. Those are the rules of Greek, which of course, none of the translators, the New World Translation knew it, but those are the rules of Greek grammar. For instance, proper nouns, John 21, 20, ho petros blepe ton mathaton. The Peter saw the disciple, the Peter, the ho, that rough breathing mark and an omicron, that's a definite article, masculine, nominative, bam, there it is. You read that in Greek and you know we're talking about Peter, not just any Peter, okay? Definite article is always definite. Luke 9.20, Petros, day, apokthenesthe, epen, but Peter answering said, now wait a minute, Luke 9.20 doesn't have a definite article. We must be talking about just some random Peter in Luke 9. No, because one of the rules is proper nouns don't generally need them. Sometimes they have them, a little more formal. Often we don't, and we mean the definite Peter. Oftentimes we have proper nouns without the article. And of course, it's still definite. Certain prepositional phrases don't have the definite article. John 1.1, for instance, which we just saw, you have these words. In arche, ein, 
uh, ho logos. In beginning was the word, to translate it literally. And you saw perhaps there in the New World Translation, the word the in brackets. Why did they put it in brackets? Because they're trying to build this interlinear, which they have, which I should have brought for you, their interlinear translation. And they're trying to show you, well, it's not in the text, but it needs to be there. Why? Because in this prepositional phrase with the Greek preposition in, you don't need the definite article, but it's still definite. And so they supply the word the. It's not literally in the text, but we know grammatically that prepositional phrase doesn't need the definite article and you still have the beginning. It's not in a beginning of something there was. No, but in the beginning was the word as a predicate nominative. This is starting to sound complicated here, but in an English example, a predicate nominative, that container of a, of a sentence that has the verb and then something that's describing something else in the subject, the subject, the verb, and the direct object, the subject, and then the verb and the direct object, that predicate nominative saying something about the subject of that sentence, you are going to now possibly not need the definite article. And in some cases, you can't have it. And here's an example. Well, in English, I'm just giving you the sense of a predicate nominative and how it even differs in English. It is me. I know we say that. If someone says, is this Mike on the phone? You say, it's me. You would say it's me, but that you don't say it's me because you know that's not right. How should you say that? It is I. That's how you should say it. Why? Because if you're really going to be proper in your English, is is, I ask the verb to be, does not take a direct object. It is an equal sign. And an equal sign takes a nominative case or a subject case. So you must say, it is I, if you're going to be proper in English. That's just English grammar. It is I, which no one says anymore, but that's proper English. Now, this is important in Greek. And here's why it's important. Because in Greek grammar, Greek word order is fluid. You could take a sentence cut out all the pieces, put them in a bag, shake them up, pour them out on a table. And you should be able to have a Greek student look at all the endings, the prefix, the suffix, everything and how it's all inflected and be able to put that sentence together and understand and be able to interpret it. That's an oversimplification depending on how long the sentence is. But you should be able to do that with a lot of short sentences because it's highly inflected and every word is going to tell you what role it plays in the sentence. Is it the object? Is it the direct object? Is it the indirect object? What is, you know, is it a verb? Is it a verb that's attached to that noun because it matches the case and the number? All of those things you learn in Greek to understand how sentence structure works. The fluidness of a sentence is very helpful. Because you start putting things at the beginning of sentences to put an exclamation point on it, to underline it, to highlight it, to underscore it. Great was the sermon. You know, if you were speaking Greek, you'd want to say that to to try and say, what I really want to say is great. Great was the sermon. Smash John the bike, right? You can even sense that in the way I I read it. That's the emphasis. And you put it up front. Eat, we should the sandwiches. And, and, and you would say that if you're super hungry and thinking, yeah, we got to eat. And, and the emphasis in Greek, you'd put that up front. Tacos, eat, we should. You could say that in Greek. And what you're getting out of that sentence is we understand tacos were the focus, not the eating. Eat the tacos, we should. That's going to say one thing. Tacos, eat, we should says something else. Now, those are subtleties in Greek, but that's one of the reasons to read the Greek New Testament has a flavor and a richness to it that you'll never get reading a translation. So there's advantages. God chose this language for a reason. Nevertheless, that fluidity in the arrangement of words in a Greek sentence then makes all these questions about how a sentence is structured and whether or not we need the the, uh, definite article or not becomes really important.
And that's just one of the rules. There are seven other grammatical rules in the Greek language you have to learn as you study language to know whether an article is needed in that noun to make it definite or not. Now, with all that said, let's look at the sentence in question. Closer look at John 1, 1. En arche en hos lagos, kai ho lagos en pros ton theon, kai theos en ho lagos. Very simple sentence, not to you perhaps if you don't know Greek, but super simple. Now, Let's give you the words. If I'm going to be super literal and just sliding them across, which doesn't always give me the right translation because I got to read the inflections. I got to know the differences in the endings in the case and all that. But in beginning was the word and the word was with the God and God was the word. Now that's how you would read the sentence, if you're just looking at what do all the definitions mean? But that's like taking the bag, putting all the words in it, shaking them, dumping it on the table, and then saying, what does that word mean? What does that word mean? That's just defining the words. That doesn't give us the meaning of the sentence. Most of these are fairly simple. I would know, for instance, in the prepositional phrase in the beginning, en arche, doesn't need a definite article. I should supply it in my translation because that prepositional phrase doesn't need the definite article. So in the beginning, I start my translation, which you really need to start by identifying verbs. If you know Greek, that's where you start. And if I'm looking at all that, I got no problems till I get down to the last line. Then I see that I got an equal sign between two nouns, not a prepositional phrase and a noun like we have in the front phrase, but now I have two nouns here that both are on, a, on the, both sides of an equal sign here with an emphasis with God on the front end of this, but I got to determine which is the predicate nominative, which is the subject and which is the predicate nominative, which is the part that's going to speak in describing the subject. So I'm going to ask myself, is that the nominative side of this or is that? Which one is it? The only way to tell with the verb to be in a sentence like this is to try and identify which one is in that nominative role by whether the definite article is there or it's not there. And in this case, it's there. So now I translate and I go, okay, I get what we're saying. The logos here is being described. And what is being said about the logos? Because there's my noun. Now I've got to decide how it's being described. It's being described as its divinity, God. That's why every translation that I put up there is going to put it that way. As a matter of fact, some are going to say truly God or fully God. Why? Because God is at the front of the sentence. And at least those translations are trying to give you the zap of the front of the phrase. God was the word, but it's not God was the word because that's not what we're saying. God was not the word. No, the word was God because those are two different meanings there. But I got to identify where the phrase starts and it starts with logos. Should have an exclamation point at the end because the description is so mind-blowing. All right, with all of that, there's so many examples of God without the article. Now I have the interlinear that the JWs put out. I have the Greek text. I have the New World Translation. So I have all their materials and I just scanned some of the materials in for you. This is the materials that they print and they publish. And here's the sentence. I know it's kind of small, but you can read that, can't you? Now that we've been through it, you can see. And what they've done there, small g there, why? Because they're going to translate it over here. Oh yeah, I'm ahead of myself. Over here, a God. Bam, why? There's no definite article. And some guy's going to stand there at your door and say, no definite article. Doesn't need uh, it doesn't need to say God, the God. It means small case God, a God. All right, great. That's what we just had. I could go all over their book and show you examples. Look at verse six. Uh, came to be man having been sent forth beside or from God in the genitive case, God of God. Oh, wait a minute. I need two, which is the Greek preposition in the genitive case for a masculine noun, God. I need two there. I don't have two there. Where's the definite article? If I'm a Greek student, oh my goodness, the man that was sent forth John the Baptist, 
was not sent forth from God, capital G, from a God, small g. Got to be. Why? Because there's no definite article. Oh, that's, of course, if it's one of the many rules as to why I don't need a definite article on a, ma- on a noun, because it's obviously definite by the prepositional phrase here, para, from God. Well, how did they translate it? Oh, they got this one right. They broke their own rule from verse number one. Do you follow what I'm doing here? Okay. Here's another one. Same chapter. But as many as took him, a lambano, a labon, the, the form, had took him, past tense, perfect tense, gave him, gave them the authority, excusia, to, to be techna, children of God, to become God. Now, I'm seeing the word God there. Again, I have a genitive connective to this. In other words, these are children that relate to God, but there's no, there's no definite article. Where's the two? Well, it must be they became children of a God. No, God. Oh, here's another one. Not of the will of man, andros, of a male person, but out of theu. Well, wait a minute. There we're going to get another genitive reference to God. There's no definite article. Maybe it's a God, but is that the way they translate it? No, they translate it capital G, a God. And I've done this with my staff, I think, before just going page after page after page after page and showing them. And if you ask a Greek grammarian, why does this not have a definite article and why is it still definite? Because there's a bunch of rules as to why that doesn't happen. And in every case, you could enlist another rule from Greek grammar to say there's no need for a definite article. We know it's definite by the construction of the sentence. And it starts with the first sentence, which is plain and simple, and people know it. I took the Greek New Testament once to the Greek classics professor at the University of Arizona. He's not a Christian, and he doesn't even spend time in the Bible. And I laid down the words of, of John 1.1. 1, 1. I said, can you translate this for me? And he translated the way every translator in the world would do it. And then I said, could you translate this a God because there's no definite article? And he's looking at me like I'm crazy. Who are, what, who are you, kid? Why are you asking me this? I said, of course you can't. And he starts to explain the rules, which of course I knew. And, and yet the idea of someone saying, we have a conspiracy going because we put this without a definite article uh, as, a, as a definite God, it's, it's absurd. Absurd. Just write these two words down and one day we'll talk about it. Prototokos, that first word right there, prototokos. Maybe I'll write an article or something and post it on, on PastorMike.com. Prototokos. That's one we need to understand because they always are going to talk about prototokos. And monogenes. That's the other one. These two words, they fail to understand. And if we had time, I'd show you and tell you why. There's just no way you can twist them into what they're trying to twist them into. Now, this is probably the best thing. Let's just get, well, we're out of time. But let me, how do they get saved? Keep, keep the rules. Do what Watchtower says. That's the short version of this. Do what they say. All right. These guys are going to come to your neighborhood. And they were going to work out of one little book, and I meant to bring it, Reasoning from the Scriptures, which mine's all dog-eared up and postmarked because it's their apologetics manual. When the guy in the house says this, you say that. When the guy in the house says this, you say that. And it is the biggest twisting of Scripture you could possibly imagine. And it's page after page on any topic that might come up at your door. This is what's given them success because a little time studying that little book now, it's, on, it's a small little book they can carry in their, in their backpack. They basically can t- wrestle most nominal, nominal Christians to the ground. So I would recommend if you have a person that is a JW in your family, this is worth getting, which is we've had him here before, Ron, as our friend, friend of Compass, Ron Rhodes, Reasoning from the Scriptures. He wrote this book in response to that book and basically answers point by point everything in that book, which is great. It's the book I would want to write uh, if I... We're into this, but he's written it, so it doesn't need to be written. If you say, well, I don't know, I don't need to get into the detail. Great. I just want to deal with the person at the door. Get this one. It's really short. Just study this one. Put it in your bathroom. Put it somewhere. You're just going to get a little bit at a time. Read it. 
and be ready. And here's one that they still popularly like to toss out that I find bothers more Christians than any other one. And it's their little booklet called, Should You Believe in the Trinity? If you do have that one or ever get handed that one, the book you should read in response to it is Bowman's book, Why You Should Believe in the Trinity, which is an answer to everything that's in that pamphlet. It's a pamphlet that covers a lot, basically this is the Trinity's construction of, of the satanic church. Logos, just type in Jehovah Witnesses, and there are some good resources there. They don't have any source material yet, but they're working on some. Here's the early studies of the JWs. If you want to bid on it uh, right now, I guess they've already set a price for that, 50 bucks. Uh, that's pretty good. The Watchtower, at least the 1879 through 1890, uh, 138 issues is all going to be available coming out. That one you have to bid on. It's at 48 bucks right now if you want to bid on that. Selective works of, of Charles Taz Russell, uh, 12 volumes, 30 bucks. That's a steal. I would bid on it now and, and if you want the source material. But it's good to read what they say, especially, especially the early stuff because the early stuff is wacky. 